Chapter twenty seven of Where Love Is by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter twenty seven A Dinner of Herbs. She loved him. Of that there was no doubt. To her he was the man of men. The half angel, half a fool of her original conception, had melted into an heroic figure capable of infinite tendernesses. The lingering, barbaric woman in her thrilled at the memory of him contemptuously facing death before the madman's revolver. Her higher nature was awed at the perfect heroism of his sacrifice. She knelt at his feet, recognising the loftier soul. Sex was stirred to the depths when his arms were about her and his kiss was on her lips. In lighter relations he was the perfect companion. For all her vacillation, let that be remembered, she loved him. All of her that was worth the giving he had in its plenitude. The days which followed her initiation into domestic economy were days of alternating fear and shame and scornful resolution. She lost grip of herself. The proud beauty curving a contumelious lip at the puppet show of life was a creature of the past. Set the proudest and most self-sufficing of women naked in what assembly you please, and she will crouch, helpless, paralysed, in the furthest corner. Some such denudation of the moral woman had occurred in the case of Norma Hardacre. The old garments were stripped from her. She was bewildered, terrified, no longer endowed with personality. Sometimes, despising herself and resolved to perform her manifest duty, she sought other lessons from Aline. They ended invariably in dismay. Once she learned that Jimmy had never had a banking account. The money was kept in a drawer of which Jimmy and Aline each had a key. On occasions the drawer had been empty. Another lesson taught her that certain shops in the neighbourhood were to be avoided as being too expensive, that cream was regarded as a luxury, and asparagus as an impossible extravagance. Every new factor in the economy of a poor household caused her to shiver with apprehension. All was so trivial, so contemptibly unimportant, and yet it grew to be a sordid barrier baffling her love. She loathed the base weakness of her nature. It was degrading to feel such repulsion. One evening Connie Deering was going to a foreign office reception, and came down an enchanting vision in a new gown from Paquin, and exhibited herself to Norma. "'I think it's rather a success, don't you?' Norma assented somewhat listlessly, but to please her friend, inspected the creation, and listened to her chatter. She was feeling lonely and dispirited. At Aline's entreaties she had persuaded Jimmy to go with Tony Merriweather to the Langham Sketch Club, thus showing himself, for the first time since the scandal, among his old associates. For her altruism she paid the penalty of a dull evening. Their visits to each other were her sole occupation now, all that was left in life to interest her. In moments of solitude she began to feel the appalling narrowness of the circle in which she was caged. Reading tired instead of refreshing her, she had been accustomed to men and women, rather than to books, to the sight of many faces, to the constant change of scene. When she speculated on employment for future solitary hours, she thought ruefully of recuffing shirts. Connie apologised for leaving her, hoped she would manage to amuse herself. Norma, who had made strenuous efforts to hide the traces of tumult, returned a smiling answer. Connie, quite deceived, put an arm round her waist, and said suddenly, in her bright, teasing way, "'Now don't you wish you were coming too?' 
Norma, staggered at the point-blank question, was mistress enough of herself to observe the decencies of reply. But when Connie had gone, she sat down on the sofa and stared in front of her. She did wish she were going with Connie. She had been wishing vaguely, half-consciously, all the evening. Now the wish was the pain of craving. It came upon her like the craving of the alcoholic subject for drink, this sudden longing for the glitter, the excitement, the whirl of the life she had renounced. Her indictment of it seemed unreal, the confused memory of a brain-sick mood. It was her world. She had not cut herself free. All the fibres of her body seemed to be rooted in it, and she was being drawn thither by irresistible desire. The many, many people, the diamonds, the brilliance, the flattery, the envy, the very atmosphere heavy with many perfumes. She saw and felt it all, panted for it, yearned for it. That never, never again would she take up her birthright was impossible. That she should stand forevermore in the humble street outside the gates of that dazzling, wonderful, kaleidoscopic world was unthinkable. She remembered her talk with Morland at the Duchess of Wiltshire's reception at the end of the last season, her shiver at the idea of a life of poverty. Was it a premonition? She remembered the blessed sense of security when she looked round the splendid scene and felt that she and it were indissoluble parts of the same scheme of things. A crust and heel of cheese as Jimmy's wife had crossed her mind then as a grotesque fantasy. The air of that brilliant gathering was the breath of her being. But now the grotesque fancy was to be the reality. The other was to become the shadow of a dream. No yearning or panting could restore it. The impossible was the inevitable. The unthinkable was the commonplace. She had made her choice deliberately, irrevocably. She had lost the whole world to gain her own soul. In the despair of her mood she questioned the worth of the sacrifice. The finality of the choice oppressed her. If at this eleventh hour she could still have the opportunity of the heroic, if still the gates of the world were open to her, she would have had a stimulus to continue nobility. The world and the passionate love for the perfect man. Which would she choose? Her exultation would still have swept her to the greater choice. Of this she was desperately aware. But the gates were shut. She had already chosen. The heroic moment had gone. The acceptance of conditions was now mere uninspired duty. She gave way to unreason. Oh God, why cannot I have both, my own love and my own life? The tears she shed calmed her. The next day she felt ill from the strain, paying the highly bred woman's penalty of nervous breakdown. Connie Deering noted the circles beneath her eyes and the pinched nostrils. Norma casually mentioned a night's neuralgia. It would pass off during the day. She refused to be doctored. She would pay a visit to Jimmy before lunch. The fresh air would do her good. "'The fresh air and Jimmy,' laughed her friend. "'You are the most beautifully in love young woman I have ever met.' Norma started on her visit, walking fast. At Baker Street Station it began to rain. She took the penitential omnibus, but her thoughts were too anxious to concern themselves with its discomforts. Besides, it was almost empty. The night had brought counsel. She would go to Jimmy and be her true self, frank and unsparing. With a touch of her old scorn she had resolved to confess unreservedly all the meanness and cowardice of which she had of late been guilty. She would bear to him the soon-spotted soul and crave his cleansing. He would understand, 
pardon and purify. Perhaps when he knew all, he would be able to devise some new scheme of existence. At any rate, she would no longer receive his kisses with a lie in her heart. She loved him too ardently. He should know what she was, what were her needs, her limitations. The meeting would be a crisis in their lives. Out of it would come reconstruction on some unshakable basis. Up to a certain point she reasoned. Beyond it, the pathetic unreason of a woman drifted rudderless. It had stopped raining when she left the omnibus and started on the short walk from the corner to Friary Grove. At the familiar gate her heart already seemed lighter. She opened it, mounted the front steps, and rang. The middle-aged servant, minus cap and with thin, untidy hair and a soiled print dress, her sleeves rolled up to the elbow, exposing red, coarse arms, was the first shock to Norma when the door opened. "'Both the master and Miss Alina are out, miss,' said Hannah, with a good-natured smile. "'He's gone into town on business, and Miss Aline went out a little while ago with her young man. "'But they'll be back for lunch. Won't you come in and wait, miss?' Norma, vaguely resenting the familiar address of the servant and her slatternly appearance, hesitated for a moment before deciding to enter. Hannah showed her into the drawing-room and retired. It was a small, dark room looking on to the back. Part of it had been cut off when the house had been altered, so as to construct the studio staircase, which contained one of the original windows. Norma felt strangely ill at ease in the room. The prim, cheap furniture, the threadbare carpet, the flimsy, girlish contrivances of decoration, gave the place an air of shabby gentility. The gilt mirror was starred with spots, and had a crack across the corner. Some of Jimmy's socks and underwear lay on the table for mending. They were much darned, and fresh holes could not fail to meet the eye that rested but momentarily on the pile. To mend these would in the future be her duty. She took up an undervest shrinkingly and shook it out, then folded it again and closed her eyes. She could not wait there. The gloom depressed her. The studio would be brighter and more familiar. She went downstairs. Nothing in the room she knew so well was changed, yet it seemed to wear a different aspect. The homely charm had vanished. Here, too, shabbiness and poverty stared at her. The morning light streaming through the great high window showed pitilessly the cracks and stains and missing buttons of the old leathern suite, and the ragged holes in the squares of old carpet laid upon the boards. It was a mere bleak workshop, not a room for human habitation. The pictures on the walls and easels ceased to possess decorative or even intimate value. The large picture of the form that had exercised so great an influence upon her had been dispatched to its purchaser, and in its place was a hopeless gap. She sat down in her accustomed chair, and once more strove to realise the future. There would be children who would need her care. On herself would all the sordid burdens fall. She saw herself a soured woman, worn with the struggle to make ends meet, working with her hands at menial tasks. The joy of life! She laughed mirthlessly. She rose, walked restlessly about the studio, longing for Jimmy to come and exorcise the devils that possessed her. A little sharp cry of distress escaped her lips. The place echoed like a vault, and she felt awfully alone. In her nervous tension she could bear it no longer. She went up the stairs again into the bare hall. On the pegs hung two or three discoloured hats and an old coat. Scarce knowing whither she went, she entered the dining-room. 
luncheon had been laid. A freak of destiny had reproduced the meal of which Morland had spoken at Wiltshire House, and of which last night had revived the memory, a scrag end of cold boiled mutton, blackened and shapeless, with the hard suet round about it, a dried-up heel of yellow American cheese, a half of a cottage loaf. The tablecloth, it was Friday, was stained with a week's meals. It was coarse in texture, old and thin and darned. The enamel on the plates was cracked, the hundred tiny fissures showing up dark brown. The plate on the forks had worn off in places, disclosing the yellowish metal beneath. The tumblers were thick and common, of glass scarcely transparent. She stared helplessly at the table. Never in her life had she seen such preparations for a meal. To the woman, always daintily fed, daintily environed, it seemed squalor, unspeakable. She shrank back into the hall, pressed her hands to her eyes, looked round as if to search for some refuge. The stairs met her eye. She had never seen what lay above the ground floor, except once, on the memorable evening when Aline had fainted. Suddenly madness seized her, an insane craving to spy out the whole nakedness of the house. The worn stair-carpet ended at the first landing, then bare boards. The door of the bathroom was wide open. She peeked in. The ceiling was blackened with gas. The bath cracked and stained, the appointments as bare as those in a workhouse. Her glance fell upon a battered tin dish, holding an uncompromising cube of yellowish soap with hard, sharp edges. She withdrew her head and shut the door hurriedly. Another door stood ajar. She pushed it open and entered. It was the front bedroom, inhabited by Jimmy. The thought that it would be her own, which a fortnight before might have clothed her in delicious confusion, chilled her to the bone. Bare boards again, a strip of oilcloth by the narrow, cheap iron bedstead, a painted deal table with a little mirror and the humblest of toilette equipment laid upon it, a painted deal chest of drawers with white handles, a painted deal washstand, a great triangular bit broken out of the mouth of the ewer. It was poverty, grinding, sordid, squalid poverty. From the one dishevelled, slatternly, middle-aged servant to the cheap paper peeling off the wall in the bedrooms, all she had seen was poverty. The gathering terror of it burst like a thunderstorm above her head, her courage failed her utterly. Like a creature distracted, she rushed downstairs and fled from the house. She walked homewards with an instinctive sense of direction. Afterwards, she had little memory of the portion of the road she traversed on foot. She moved in a shuddering nightmare. All the love in the world could not shed a glamour over the nakedness of the existence that had now been revealed to her in its entire crudity. She could not face it. Other women of gentle birth had forsaken all and followed the men they loved. They had loved peasants and had led great-heartedly the peasant's life. They had qualities of soul that she lacked. Hideously base, despicably cowardly she knew herself to be. It was her nature. She could not alter. The world of graceful living was her world. In the other she would die. He had warned her. The gypsy faith in Providence had made him regard as a jest what would be to her a sordid shift, an intolerable ugliness, stripping life of its beauty. The passion-flower could not thrive in the hedge with the dog-rose. It was true, mercilessly true. The craving of last night awoke afresh, imperiously insistent. 
She walked blindly, tripped and nearly fell. Her subconscious self hailed a passing hansom and gave the address. What would become of her? She knew not. She thought wildly of suicide as the only possible escape. From her own world she was outcast. Her gates were barred with gold and opened but to golden keys. She was penniless. In this other world she would die. Love could not prevent her starving on its dart of herbs. She clung to life to the stalled ox and recked little of the hatred. But at the banquet she no longer had a seat. She had said she would follow him in rags and barefoot over the earth. She had not fingered the rags when she had made the senseless vow. She had not tried her tender feet on the stones. She could have shrieked with terror at the prospect. There was no way out but death. The garden of enchantment faded from her mind like a forgotten dream. The sweet Arcadian make-believe alone rose up in ironical mockery, a scathing memory which seemed to flay the living heart of her. She sat huddled together in a corner of the cab, tortured and desperate. On either hand hung the doom of death. In the one case it would be lingering. The soul would die first. The man she loved would be tied to a living corpse. She would be a devastating curse to him instead of a blessing. In the other she could leave him in the fullness of their unsullied love. The years that the locust hath eaten would not stretch an impassable waste between them. In his sorrow there would be the imperishable sense of beauty, and for herself the quick end were better. She was aroused to consciousness of external things by a husky voice addressing her from somewhere above her head. The cab had stopped at Connie's house in Branston Square. She descended, handed to the man the first coin in her purse that her fingers happened to grasp. He looked at it, said that he was sorry he had not changed for a sovereign. She waved her hand vaguely, deaf to his words. The cabman, with a clear conscience, whipped up his horse smartly and drove off. A figure on the doorstep raised his hat. "'How delightful of you to arrive at the very moment, Miss Hardacre. I am summoned back to America. I sail to-morrow. I was calling on the chance of being able to bid you good-bye.' Norma collected her scattered wits and recognised Theodore Weaver. She looked at him full in the eyes. Her lips were parted. Her breath came fast. He stretched out his hand to press the electric button so as to gain admittance to the house. She touched his arm, restraining his action, and still stared at him. "'Wait,' she said at last. "'I have something to say to you.' "'I am honoured,' he replied in his imperturbable way. "'Have you found your decorative wife, Mr. Weaver?' A sudden light shone lambently in his pale, expressionless blue eyes. "'Am I to understand that I can find her on Mrs. Deering's doorstep?' "'If you look hard enough,' said Norma. He took her hand and shook it with the air of a man concluding a bargain. "'I felt sure of it,' he said. "'I intended from the first to marry you. I shall ever be your most devoted servant.' "'I make one condition,' she said. "'Name it. You don't enter this house, and I sail with you to-morrow.' "'Certainly. What train shall I catch, and from what station shall I start?' "'The ten o'clock from Waterloo.' She rang the bell. "'May I trouble you to book my passage?' "'It will be my happiness.' "'Au revoir,' she said, holding out her hand. He raised his hat and walked away briskly. The door opened, and Norma entered the house.
End of chapter 27.